let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, where we will continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. And while we're turning there, let me say a few words of introduction. This morning, as we come to Luke chapter 1, we're going to see a narrative concerning Mary. And I want to say a few remarks about how we ought to think about Mary. As you may know, if you have a background in Catholicism or if you have family who came out of the Catholic Church, you know that we think quite differently as Protestants than they do about Mary, that over the years in the early church, around the time of 400 A.D., it became quite common that people looked at Mary and made arguments about her that led people to worship. They wouldn't call it worship, but they would call it veneration. And there are many things that attend to that. What we're going to see this morning in the text is that these things are not actually rooted in what Scripture teaches us about Mary. But we can react against some of these false teachings in a way where we tend to ignore her and see nothing of worth at all, or we avoid talking about or thinking about her. And I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, that's also not what Scripture presents before us. Scripture doesn't give us Mary as an object of veneration, but it does give us Mary as a model for imitation. And very specifically, what I want to argue this morning is that Mary is a model of how to receive God's Word with faith, with humility, and with submission. And so if you found your place in Luke chapter 1, would you follow along with me, beginning in verse 26, and I will read to verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning seeking your grace, even as we read and have read about how so many years ago you sent your angel 
to Mary to deliver to her a message of grace. We also know, Lord, that we have nothing in our hands to bring, but we depend wholly on your grace to understand your word, to receive it in our hearts, to receive it with the kind of humble submission that we see exemplified in Mary. So we pray, O Lord, that you would work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure in this way by opening our minds and softening our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I argued and will argue that Mary is a model for us, an example that is worthy of our imitation. She shows us how we ought to respond to God's word. I want to give you the Ways first in, the, in which she shows us how to respond to God's Word under three headings. First, she shows us how to respond to God's Word by setting her heart to understand, setting her heart and mind to understand God's Word. And we'll see in each of these things that God answers that desire. The second way is that she showed her desire to submit to God's Word. That is, to order her life in a manner that was consistent with what God said by way of the angel. And thirdly, what we'll see is that she submitted to God's word by surrendering, by declaring that she is his servant, and that she will do as the Lord would have her do, and be what the Lord would have her be. And so, these are three ways in which Mary models for us a right response to the word of the Lord. Let's look more closely at them. The text before us is tied to the text that has come before. We're told that this occurs in the sixth month, and that is a reference to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Last week, we saw how God came to Zechariah and declared that his wife, who was old and barren, would give birth to a son, and indeed, the word of the Lord was fulfilled. She conceived, and she hid herself for five months. So Mary has no knowledge of this because Elizabeth has hidden herself. But here in the sixth month, that same angel Gabriel is sent by the Lord to Mary to deliver to her a message. We're told a few things about her. We're told that she is in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We simply should note here that in the first instance that we saw last week, Zechariah was in Jerusalem in the temple You might say, if you were to put it in our own way of thinking, Zechariah was in New York City. But here, Mary's in a place like Coloma. She's off the beaten path in Nazareth in Galilee. But the angel comes to her there in this humble setting. And as he addresses her, is about to address her, we find out that she is a virgin, that she's betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house of David. He is of the lineage of David which reminds us that he is a potential heir to the promises of David, that David would have a son who would reign on the throne forever and ever, that he would have a kingdom that would last forever. So she's betrothed to this man. Historically speaking, this is a very different situation than what we understand by an engagement in modern terms. Mary would not have had much contact with Joseph, during this betrothal. It was a time where she was intended to be his wife, and she really was required to be committed to him as her husband. 
and yet it was a time prior to their marriage, uh, prior to their coming together and uh, fulfilling the marriage. She would have most likely been given to Joseph in a kind of agreement between her father and Joseph's father, where Joseph's father would have paid a bride price to her father, since her father was losing a helper in the family and she was joining this other man's family. Joseph may have had some say in this, but very likely Mary had no say in it. And she was also most likely much younger than, uh, than we would expect if it were to occur in our own context. She was somewhere likely between the age of 13 and 15. It gives us a context of where Mary is in her life, what kind of person she is, a, y- a young person that is, a person who is, is really quite young by our standards and our expectations. And that makes her faith all the more remarkable. Because as we're going to see the narrative in the, in the unfolding narrative, there are challenges that are going to be presented to her in these words of grace. These words of grace do not come without hardship. And so the angel speaks to her, saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this is an amazing statement. Imagine if an angel came to you this evening or in a private point this afternoon and addressed you and said, Hail or greetings. You have received grace. The Lord is with you. It would be an awesome experience. And yet, like Mary, you might be wondering, well, please give me a little bit more detail. What do you mean that the Lord is with me? In what way is the Lord with me? How is the Lord with me? You see, the saying is not entirely clear. At a general level, it makes a great deal of sense. You are a recipient of grace, and the Lord is with you. But in a very uh, specific way, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so Mary, unsurprisingly then, is troubled at the saying. She's greatly perplexed by this saying. The word is similar to Zechariah's response to the saying of the angel, but to a greater degree. Zechariah, too, was perplexed at what the angel said, but she is greatly perplexed in a way that suggests that she is desirous to understand it, that she's curious to know what does this mean. And we see that then in what follows, where she tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's trying to understand what it is that the angel has declared to her from the Lord. And this is that first model, that first example that we ought to look to and learn from as we think about God's Word. We know that God's Word is clear. We confess that God's Word is clear. And yet we also must recognize that it is not equally clear in all its parts. The essential message of salvation, the essential message of Scripture is straightforward and clear, and yet in our reading of Scripture day by day and week by week, we regularly encounter things that are a puzzle that are difficult and mysterious. And we can become discouraged. We can become perplexed by the fact that we don't understand what God is always saying in His Word. What I want to suggest to you that the first step, the first thing that you ought to do in response to that reality 
is set your heart and your mind to understand. Seek to understand. Here, Mary has a message of God's grace, but she doesn't understand the particulars of how that grace will be borne out. In my own life, I reflect on my childhood, which uh, in experience was somewhat different than Mary's. I understood the particulars. I knew the narratives and the stories, what Jesus had done. I could tell you about Old Testament stories. I could tell you about New Testament stories. But all through my childhood, I had this sinking feeling that I had no idea what it was all about. As a boy in Sunday school, someone might say to you, me and the other kids, how do you get to heaven? And I would say with all the other kids in a chorus, well, you believe in God. But I had that sinking feeling in my heart and in my mind that there was more to it that I had not grasped. I was afraid to ask people, and yet, internally, I set my heart to understand. I, I wanted to understand how to put it all together. And God, in His mercy, through His normal means, when I was a teenager, prepared a man who prepared a curriculum for a youth group. At the very beginning of that curriculum, he defined the words grace, the words mercy, very simply, that grace is God's undeserved favor to us. And mercy is not getting the judgment that we deserve. And we can go into more detail in defining that, but for me, as I turned those over in my mind, and I thought about how to get them straight and not confuse one with the other, suddenly it became clear and I began to understand the particulars in a more general way. And you see in my testimony, it's the reverse, but it's very similar to Mary. Mary understands the general truth that God has given her grace, but she needs the particulars and she sets her mind to understand and God in His mercy gives her an explanation through the words of the angel when He says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. You see, the answer that makes sense of the general truth that God has shown grace to each one of us is the particular truth that that grace is received through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so too, in Mary's life, God gives her an answer. And that answer is a son. And not just any son, but one whose Greatness is unequaled. And so as the angel goes on, he speaks about the son who Mary is to conceive. And he says, not only that his name will be Jesus, but he will be great. Here we remember what Gabriel said about John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be great before the Lord, he said. But here he says of Jesus, he will be great without qualification. John indeed was great, but he was great as the forerunner who went before the Lord and prepared his way. He was great because he pointed to another more clearly than any who had ever pointed before him, more clearly than Isaiah, more clearly than Moses. John pointed with the greatest clarity to the one who is great without qualification. That was how he was great. But this one is great not because he points to another, but because he is the one to whom all the prophets pointed. 
is great without qualification. Again, the angel goes on about this son to be born. That he will be called the son of the Most High. Herein lies his greatness in his nature. That he is not merely any human son. But he is the Son of the Most High. The Son of God Himself. Not just the Son of Mary. Not just the adopted Son of Joseph. But He is God incarnate. That is what He is saying. He will be called the Son of the Most High. For that is who He is. This child to be born is the one who had no beginning. The one of whom the Apostle John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him and apart from Him. Nothing was made that has been made. He is the uncreated creator of all things. The Son who has always been with the Father. The Son who has always been God and one with God. The eternal Son of God is who this Son is. And here, in this glorious mystery, the angel says, he's to be born. He's to be conceived and grow in a womb and be born as a child. He indeed will be great, the one who is the Son of the Most High. And he goes on, the Lord God will give to him his, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and as of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this morning in the reading that you heard and the reading we read together, we saw these ideas. Turn over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The reading this morning that our brother read came from this passage and it was David's response to a promise made by God. This is an important passage. Memorize the location of it. Know it well. For this is a significant passage in the unfolding narrative of all of Scripture. And to set its context for you, in this context, David came into David's heart when he had rest all around from all his enemies to build for the Lord a house, a temple. And the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David to tell him, I never asked you to build me a house, but in a Play on words, he's going to tell David that I will build a house for you, by which he means a dynasty. And here in verse 14 of chapter, excuse me, if we look up a little bit to verse 12, we read verse 17 of this, we see that promise where God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will, shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, 
and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so we heard those words read of David's prayer of gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord because of this promise, this promise that amazed him. Now we need to understand in that context that very often in prophetic contexts, there are two reference points. There's a near reference point where these things would be fulfilled in part in the birth of Solomon, who indeed would build a house for the Lord, would build that temple, and yet would sin and commit iniquity and would be disciplined with the rod of men. And David's sons after him, these kings who came from his line, they would sin as well, and they too would be disciplined with the stripes of men. The Christ would be disciplined with the stripes of men, but not for his own iniquity, for he had none. And so we understand that there's also a further reference, a final fulfillment for all of these words, not just part of them, but for all of them to be fulfilled. There must be a son who reigns forever, not just an unending succession of kings who are sinners in their own right, but one final son of David, one final king who will reign forever and ever and ever in justice and righteousness as we read together from Isaiah chapter 9. And here Gabriel comes to Mary and says, God is fulfilling that promise now by giving you a son. He will be this king. He will receive from the Lord the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there will be no end, not just in the course of time, but no end in all the universe, in all creation, he will reign over it all. And so we must understand that when we set our minds to understand God's word, that the answer comes to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that what he has done is a gracious gift to us. That it is all of grace. We've not earned it or deserved it. It was gracious to Mary... She was not perfect. She was a sinner like us. And it is gracious to us. We must, must understand that general truth, but we must also understand the particular truth that, that grace is born out in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you will not make sense of any of Scripture until you begin to make sense of it through Him. And so she shows us how to set our hearts to understand God's Word, and then the angel shows us how we begin to understand it as we set our hearts by seeking to discern those things that are difficult, those things that are hard for us to understand. The discernment comes in Jesus Christ. Now, she shows us a second way in which we ought to receive and respond to the Word of God, and that's by, giving, by showing us her desire to submit to God's word. Notice her response to what the angel says in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now we remember last week, and in the passage before this, what Zechariah said when the angel came to him. It's a little bit different, though. We need to see this. Zechariah says, How will I know this? There's an air of doubt. There's a skeptical attitude to the work of the Lord. And it was a great work to give a barren woman a child, but it was not unprecedented. 
Zechariah should have believed, and instead he demanded a sign. But Mary is not asking for a sign, and here we need to, again, think about her context. She is a young woman. She is a virgin. She has not known any man, and yet she's about to be married. And so, presumably, the answer could be that God would give her a son in the natural means when she comes together with her husband and is married to him, that her son would be this king. And yet, in the language here, there seems to be a suggestion that this thing is going to happen quite quickly. It's going to happen quite soon. Though it is future, that this conception is not going to be delayed. And she wants to understand, how will this be? Or to put it another way, what is incumbent upon me? What must I do to order my life in accordance with this word? She desires to submit to God's word. Now, the angel gives her another answer. And again, it's an answer that looks to God's grace. And it reminds us of God's triune nature at the same time. For we must understand that God's grace is not only shown to us through the Son, but it is also shown to us through the giving of the Spirit. If we have faith in Christ, we have faith because God has given us His Spirit and caused us to be born again so that we might see with new eyes and we might understand His Word. This does not come from us, but it comes as a gift of God through His Spirit. And if we grow in holiness, we must also recognize that this too is a gift that God has given us, which is mediated to us through the Spirit. Therefore, in Galatians When Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, he rightly calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience are not things that we discipline ourselves so well to practice. They are fruit that God produces in us by His Spirit. And so, to live in holiness, to live a sanctified life, is something we can only do by God's grace. And so, too, here, the answer that God gives through the angel to Mary, how will this be? The answer, generally, is by my grace. And specifically, the answer is seen in the Holy Spirit, in the work of the Spirit. So the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The explanation is that Mary will not conceive in the normal, natural means, but her conception will be a work of, of the triune God as the Spirit produces life in her. It's a work of the Holy Spirit through and through. And so when Luke refers to the Spirit coming upon you and the power of the Most High, these two statements are in parallel. We ought to understand one as explaining the other. That power we've already seen is a way that we can speak of the work of the Spirit. We saw that when the angel described the ministry of John the Baptist, that he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. The spirit is associated with power. Even in Isaiah 11, we see that he is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so the spirit of the Lord will do this, for he is the one who is powerful to do it in us. The one whom God sends to do His work in us. And so in Mary, He is the one 
who powerfully works this conception in her? The answer is by God's grace mediated through the Holy Spirit. Now God in His mercy gives her a sign. When Zechariah asked for a sign, which was implied by his response, it was asked in unbelief, and so he received the sign, but he received it with a rebuke. But God often gives signs to His people when He makes amazing promises. Not at their request, though, but in His mercy, He offers a sign. And so He gives her a sign. He points her to her cousin, Elizabeth, saying, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Elizabeth is the proof that God will indeed do what He's promised, for He's already begun to do it in Elizabeth, her cousin, by giving her a son as well. And then He tells us, nothing will be impossible with God. See, this is the truth, the basic and fundamental truth that undergirds all this, that should encourage our belief and our trust. When God promises those things that seem to us impossible, we must remember that nothing Nothing in all creation will be impossible for the Lord. There is nothing that is too hard for Him to do. And so we receive God's promises even when they seem far off, even when they seem impossible, even when they seem difficult to believe because we know that God is faithful and God is mighty and He fulfills every word that He has spoken. And that is the response of the angel to Mary when she sets her heart to submit to God's will. He encourages her submission by assuring her of his powerful and mighty work and his ability to do all that he pleases. So finally, we come to this third way in which Mary shows us how we might also respond to the word of the Lord. Here, she has set her mind to understand and she has received an explanation. She has set her heart to submit and she has received instruction. Instruction that tells her that all she has to do is the ordinary things that a person are, is called to do in his or her life. Just bear a son. Go through a pregnancy. Raise him. And, as implied, be married to your husband, who you probably don't know very much, we can presume. But... God has ordained him too, to be the one who will lead her, and as we'll see in the evenings in Matthew's gospel, to protect her and the child, to care for them, just be a wife, be a mother, and do these ordinary things. God is doing an extraordinary work. He is bringing in a kingdom that will last forever. He is doing it by his own power. And Mary doesn't have to bring anything to the table but submission by living that ordinary life. Because God is pleased to work through humble and ordinary means to show His power, to fulfill His purposes. And Mary submits herself to that. She doesn't say, but shouldn't I have a husband who is more powerful? A husband who is of a higher status in life? Someone who might be closer to taking the throne? No. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant. That is, I am the slave of the Lord. 
I am the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God has called her to do ordinary things by which God will fulfill extraordinary promises. She submits herself to that. She says, I am a, just as David prayed in that, in that prayer that we heard read this morning, again and again, I am the servant of the Lord. So too, Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. I am his bondservant. Be it done to me according to your word. In our own day, there is a lot of focus on what we need to be doing to accomplish different objectives in our society. Sometimes those objectives are political. Sometimes those goals might be in another realm. But we need to form movements, people say. We need to come together and, and do mighty works and exercise our power. And there are times where prudence requires us to be faithful with the things that God has given us and to take action that is consistent with godly principles in life. But we must do so with humility, with the mindset of a servant, trusting ourselves to the Lord who is the one who works His purposes according to His good pleasure. I've read some articles and books recently that are saying that what we need is a great political movement with a great political leader who will bring in a kind of a Christian nation. And I say, I look across the pages of Scripture and I see that there is one who will bring in the kingdom of our Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. And all His servants along the way, God calls to live lives of faithfulness and humility. Imitating that one who went before us. For he did not bring in the kingdom by great might or by a great political movement. He brought in his kingdom by proclaiming it as a humble man, going throughout Galilee, and then going to a cross and dying on the cross for our sins. So whatever we do in this life, whatever we commit ourselves to in this life, Look back to these examples, people like Mary, and more so to her son, who is great without qualification and yet humbled himself, became a child, became a carpenter's son, grew up in the equivalent in Judea of a know-nothing town in West Virginia or something. And yet this humble man is the one who is called great, the Son of the Most High. For He is holy, set apart for God's purposes. He is the Son of God. And so we commit ourselves to the Word of the Lord. We receive it well when we submit to His calling to live lives of humble service in imitation of our King. And trusting that he indeed will bring in that kingdom according to God's purposes, according to God's good plan, according to his timing. That is how we receive God's word with the heart of a servant. In conclusion, know this. 
Very often, we live our lives desiring to be significant. We live our lives desiring to be something. But God has called us to lives that are significant because they are lives of service. Mary's significance was not in being a queen, not in seeing her son sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Her significance was in that statement, be it done to me according to the word of the Lord. I am your bondservant. That is what God has called each of us to. Here I quote something my dad wrote about this passage. He said, being the Lord's bond slave means relinquishing personal rights in order to bow the knee to the master's will, no matter how difficult the circumstances. And then he quoted or cited from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 23. You know that passage about how Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That passage where we are called, where servants are called to submit to their masters, even those who are hard and difficult. And then my father went on to write these words. You can never be more satisfied than when resting in the favor of the one who created created, redeemed, and loves you unconditionally. This is worship. In the end, that's what we see in Mary's life. She shows us ultimately how to receive God's word with worship by submitting our lives to the will of the Lord, not seeking to be significant in our own right, not seeking to be great in our own right, but seeking that kind of greatness that John had and that Mary had, that significance that comes in pointing to another, the one who is great, without qualification. Eric Little, a name you may know, was a man who understood that. He was an Olympian, the fastest man alive at his time of life, and yet he chose to give up that career to go to China to serve as a missionary. And there he died in the camp of illness. Before he died, he said these words, It's all about surrender. It's all about surrender to the will of the Lord. And that's what Mary shows us. God has spoken in His Holy Word. And for us, if we desire to be significant, its significance will be found in another. And therefore, for us, it's all about surrender. Let's pray. Father in heaven, teach us, O Lord, to submit to Your Holy Word. Teach us to find our significance not in earthly power or earthly significance, but in knowing Christ Jesus and proclaiming Him, the one who was crucified for our sakes, the one who bore our sin on a cross, who bore our shame so that we might be set free. Lord, make us to believe in Him and to trust Him in all our days. We thank you for this gracious gift that you have shown us in him. Sometimes calls us to live lives that are shameful before others. And yet we know that it is a gracious gift and a gracious calling to which you've called us, just as it was a gracious calling to which you called Mary. So make us servants, Lord. Make our hearts soft. Make us wise as we saw in the example of this faithful woman.
We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.